All right, we'll be thinking about chapter uh, 20, and you'll notice it has a double title um, because it deals really with two related but distinct subjects. Um, our, our liberty in Christ, uh, that is Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. Um, and it's important that we make that distinction from the outset because Christian liberty is simply about matters that are at the heart of the gospel. Freedom from sin and death and hell. Freedom from our father, the devil. Uh, freedom from the curse of the law all through the blood of Jesus Christ. But liberty of conscience, on the other hand, is about the relationship between our individual convictions and human authority, both in the church and the state. And so we'll be looking at each of those just under, under two headings briefly. And I want us to begin by thinking about our liberty in Christ, Christian liberty. Uh, that's what this is about, the liberty that we have in Christ. The, the first thing that is rightly established here is the truth that redemption in Jesus Christ brings freedom. When Paul wrote to the Galatian church, which was in danger of following another gospel, going back into slavery, he wrote in Galatians 5.1, he said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And the confession correctly emphasizes that our freedom is purchased by the life and death of Jesus Christ. I pointed out to you that one of the main words that's used in the Bible for our salvation is the word redemption. And that word means to buy back. It means deliverance by the payment of a price. It referred to being bought back out of bondage or slavery. And, and that reminds us that by nature we were slaves to sin. We were in bondage to ourselves, to the powers of evil, to our father, the devil, and born under the judgment of God. But when we trust in Christ, we are set free. As Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And we don't have time to go through all of them, but the uh, the confession mentions no less than 11 aspects of our freedom that we have in Christ. And they're all, um, they're all drawn directly from the proof texts that are, that are given there. But you'll, you'll notice that some of them are related to our justification. Uh, for example, freedom from the guilt of sin, the wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, the eternal fire of hell, and these are all related to our justification. And related to our justification as well is now the, the free access that we have to God. Other freedoms are related to our sanctification. Freedom from the evil world, from bondage to Satan, from the power of sin. We can think about it this way. In justification, we are freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification freed from the power of sin. And positively, as it relates to our sanctification, we're set free in Christ to serve God, not as slaves, 
but as his beloved children. And we're told that even our sufferings are transformed into means of sanctification for us. And even death itself loses its sting because Jesus has transformed the grave from a pathway to hell to a pathway to glory. So the first thing that's established is that our liberty, this is something that has been purchased by Jesus Christ. And that means that these freedoms are not to be taken lightly. They're not to be abused. And we'll get to that in in the next sections. They shouldn't be abused. They shouldn't be used as a cloak for sin because of how precious they are. Jesus suffered and died in our place to procure these freedoms for us. But then you'll notice that the confession, it notes the, the difference, the, the, the difference between liberty in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, you'll notice, like, the, um, I'm sorry, I didn't keep my open. I think it's section two. It uses the phrases under the law and under the gospel. Um, this is referring to the time of the Old Testament versus the time of the New Testament. Now, the the confession has articulated already what the Bible teaches, and that is the church is one in all ages. Um, It was in a previous section that uh, talked about the purpose of the ceremonial law was really for the instruction of a church under age. Um, We read that so that all the blessings which have been described were common also to believers under the law. That doesn't mean there weren't differences. Uh, there are differences between the Old and New Testament eras when it comes to, to the freedom that we have. Uh, uh, as we saw in the previous section, we are no longer under the ceremonial law. There's no longer a priesthood because Christ is our priest. There's no longer animal sacrifice because Christ is our final sacrifice. Uh, all of those dietary laws and regulations which emphasize Israel's need to be separate or sanctified, those have passed away in the full light of Jesus Christ. Another difference is really, it's a matter of degree. And because of the finished work of Christ, we are said to enjoy greater boldness of access to the throne of grace. If you think about it, Could Old Testament believers approach God? Yes, they could. But there were limitations to that access. They they couldn't enter the Holy of Holies. Only the priest could do that, and even he could only do it once a year. So the question is, could they come before? Yes. But they were much more limited then we are. Now that Christ has come, the veil is removed, we are encouraged to come boldly to the throne of grace. Uh, we also en- enjoy what the confession calls fuller communications of the free spirit of God. And communications here um, is what we would, I guess, say as imparting, a, a greater imparting of the Holy Spirit, a greater measure of the Spirit's uh, teaching and gifts and power than did the Old Testament saints. Um, The phrase uh, free spirit here, um, 
captivated me a bit. I couldn't figure out where that came from. And the best ex explanation I found was Psalm 51.12 of the King James Version. Um, and it seems to be referring to the Spirit's generous and bountiful outpouring of Himself to us. Um, I'm trying to remember the illustration that I, I heard you know, when we think about, did the, did the Old Testament saints have the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, but not in the fullness that we do. We, we read from Psalm uh, 51 in the first service, and David says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. So that, the Holy Spirit was clearly at work in the lives of God's people, but not to the degree in which He is in us now. So liberty in Christ, it's that which Christ purchased for us by His life and His death, the benefits of the gospel to us. But then we move on to liberty of conscience, and the remaining sections uh, deal with that subject. And we, ha we have to remember, this was a pressing matter for the members of the Westminster Assembly. Uh, this is uh, the, the tradition of the uh, denomination that I um, am an ordained minister in. Uh, they were Puritans. And many of them had been persecuted severely by the church. That's hard for us to understand. Persecuted by the church and the nation for refusing to observe ceremonies that were prescribed by the bishops under Charles I. They were requiring things like turning uh, the communion table into an altar, kneeling to receive communion, making the the pastors wear these very priest-like vestments. Um, again, it's, hard, it, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like. This would be like the, uh, the mayor of Colorado Springs coming in here and, and saying, Jason, you need to wear this. And you know, I, I would look like an Old Testament priest and say, well, I don't, you know, Jesus is our priest now. I don't feel comfortable with this. Well, do this or we're going to throw your whole group in jail. I mean, this, these are the kind of things that, that happened. And they... They resisted because these things were not warranted by Scripture. And these men felt that it would be a violation of their conscience, so they refused to do these things. And many of them suffered severe penalties for, for their refusal. And it's in, in this, uh, this time period um, in uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church, there, there's a time known as the killing time. Where, where many uh, church mem members, many ministers uh, gave their lives um, because they refused to um, bow to these demands. And by conscience here, the, the confession is dealing with that inward conviction about what God requires. And violation of that inward conviction would result in feeling God's displeasure, having a sense of, of guilt. And liberty of, of conscience is an application of the, the principle of the first chapter of the confession. Where, where do we find what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us? In the Bible alone. And uh, that means if any authority, whether it be civil, a local government, 
or ecclesiastical in the church if they command us to do or believe something that's contrary to God's word. Our conscience dictates that we obey God rather than man. And we could, we could think of it this way. When, you know, when it comes to uh, this liberty of conscience, the word of God needs to be the rudder that guides our conscience. Not our feelings, but the word of God is what informs us and serves as that rudder that guides our conscience. And then the confession goes off on to talk about liberty of conscience in faith and worship. And that means there's another more restricted sphere in which conscience is free. Matters of faith and worship. And it, it underlines the biblical command that while we are to be a, uh, careful about all matters of conscience, we're to be especially careful when it comes to doctrine and worship. In this sphere, nothing may be imposed on the conscience which is beside or addition to the Word of God. And the confession here uh, affirms what is called the regular principle of worship. Uh, is that a fairly familiar term? The regulative principle of worship, that the idea that God alone determines how he is to be worshipped. We look to his word to find out how God wants to be worshipped. And in that, there is safety for us. And that, that means we're, you know, a, whether it's a pastor or a, a group of elders or a civil authority, we're not required to impose on you anything not required in the Word of God. And, um, and again, it, you know, the, it's hard for us to imagine, but the day might be coming soon where we have to deal with this. You know, in the days of the Reformation, you had civil authorities trying to impose on the church things to do in worship that weren't biblical. And we're getting there. We're, we are getting there. Where... Uh, the government is inching closer and closer to imposing on us things that are not commanded in the Word of God. And so some people might ask, you know, why is, why is your worship so simple? You know, we come to Reformed churches, it's, it's simple worship. Well, that's because we look to God's Word. And there is, there's a beauty in that simplicity and there's a safety for us where we, we don't have to worry about displeasing God, and we can worship with a free conscience. And, you know, that's, I think that, you know, I, I spent most of my life in the evangelical church, and I feel like that's maybe the sad irony of what we see in the evangelical church today, where things keep getting added to the worship service, where fewer and fewer people can worship with a free conscience, and you know, in the end, what, what that ends up doing is it's, you're putting yourself back under the bondage from which Christ freed you. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 9, when he said, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And we, uh, I, I really believe that we stand in need of a new reformation. If you... Look at the state of the evangelical church. You can draw many parallels to the days of the Reformation and, and the poor condition of the church. Sermon for another day. 
Now, our freedom in Christ is it's precious, but it's also liable to be abused. Paul warned in Galatians 5.13, he said, You brothers have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Through love, serve one another. And the confession here is very careful. It follows Paul's teaching in devoting two sections to warning us against abusing Christian liberty, against using liberty as a license to sin. Uh, section 3 actually quotes from uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 74 to 75, to emphasize the purpose of Christian liberty. What is the purpose of our Christian liberty? It's a life of godliness and Christ-likeness. Zechariah prophesied about the freedom that Christ would bring, saying that Christ came so that we might be delivered from the hand of our enemies, that we might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the day of our lives. That's the purpose. And we need to keep that in mind. I think you know, too many Christians say, well, I'm just free to do whatever I want. Well, if it's not leading to godliness and Christ-likeness, then it's an abuse and ultimately bondage. Now, the fourth section is a bit complicated. I'm not going to go into it too deeply. Um, it sets forth the proper function of human authority and guarding against the abuses of our liberty. Um, um, it, it expresses the truth that Human authority, whether it be civil, you know, whether it be our, our government, or ecclesiastical, whether it be the leadership in the church, that these are not the enemy of Christian liberty. That both these spheres of authority, when exercised rightly, should encourage Christian liberty and set us free. Um, and we need to remember that I think specifically, you know, we... I feel like as the church went through the trials of, of COVID and uh, people lost faith in the, in the leaders of the church, we can easily throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I, I can sit here and say that, you know, during all the COVID craziness that I certainly didn't get everything right. I certainly didn't make the right decisions all the time. And yet we need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. These authority structures are still in place for our good. And the same goes with our civil authority. Um, no matter how pathetic and ineffective it often is, it's, it's there for a reason. Ideally, human authority, um, ecclesiastical, civil, should work together to um, affirm that liberty of conscience. Um, the confession also establishes that human authority cannot and should not deal with inner convictions. It shouldn't deal with matters of the conscience. Uh, if human authority does this, it's trying to enter into God's domain. Because God alone, He's the Lord of conscience. Uh, human authority, and that's what this kind of complicated, archaic language is getting at. Human authority is limited to dealing with outward practices. It should encourage righteous outward practices. It should punish 
ungodly, unlawful practices. And that's a problem today, is it not? Because what do we see our civil rulers doing? They're out of their domain. They're, they're trying to impose upon people what they should believe upon their consciences, things that are contrary to God's Word, while at the same time they're refusing to deal with those outward practices. They're refusing to uh, uh, encourage and uphold righteous, lawful practices, and they're refusing to punish those who break the law. And you know, we see, I'm sure many of you are aware of like what's going on in San Francisco and cities like Portland, Oregon, where you know, we see this, like civil rulers who will not enforce and uphold those outward matters of the law where these cities are simply crumbling. Um, that's the job of uh, the civil magistrate um, to um, encourage moral behavior, to punish immoral behavior. Um, the, the confession goes on here to talk about and kind of warn against exercising our liberty of conscience in a way which is disruptive and divisive to the church. And I, I think, too, this is, this is something we need to uh, take heed to in this day and age. Paul warned the divisive people in the Corinthian church. He said, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And there seems to be an aversion in the church today to really calling out sin and, and having the discernment to recognize when there is a person in the church who is simply a malcontent, and I'm not looking at any of you, so to, I'll, I'll just look right down here so you don't think I'm, because I'm not looking at any of you. But I, I think we've all experienced this. You find someone who's unhappy, and they stir up strife and trouble and division in a church, and it, it just runs unchecked. And it seems today that as the church, we're afraid to call out this sin, which God hates. How many churches have been destroyed? How many ministries have been undermined by one troublemaker who, who goes around and gets people on their side? And I think we need to learn that some of these things might not come to the level of church discipline, that principle in church discipline is we should avoid people like that. Don't give them an audience. Uh, how many churches have been brought down? Jesus warned, he said, that those who stir up uh, trouble in the church belong to the synagogue of Satan. So this is something the Lord takes seriously. We need to be careful that our exercise of Christian liberty doesn't result in division in the church. So I think we can be reminded with all this as I wrap this up that you know many people think that the Christian life is narrow and restrictive. And they might come to a church like this and say, well, your way of worship is very narrow and restrictive. But the Bible's picture of life with God is much different. The Bible's picture of biblical worship is much different. Without Christ, we were truly in bondage, but when we commit our lives to Christ and trust Him, He sets us free, giving us what Paul called 
that glorious liberty. Uh, we are His children. Um, that liberty has its limits so that we don't forsake that liberty and go back under the yoke of sin. And it's all because of the perfect sacrifice, the perfect obedience, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the freedom that we have, freedom that was purchased at great cost, the very life of your precious Son who gave himself for us. We pray, Lord, that you might Lord, guide our consciences through your word, that we might be sensitive to your word, Lord, that we might not let the, the word of this present world, we would not let our flesh, we would not let the devil inform our consciences, but your word alone. Lord, we pray that, Lord, as we exercise that liberty of conscience, that we would do so in a careful way. You would keep us from abuses of it, so that in the exercise of this freedom, we might bring glory to Jesus Christ. We pray in his great name. Amen.